You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Morning, Anthem. My name is Todd, and we are in the book of Ruth this morning, if you want to open your Bibles there. Uh, It's in the Old Testament. Uh, It's in the history books. So if you start at your left and work through the books of Moses, then you'll have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So that's where you want to be this morning. And uh, if you saw on the the logo that the the series, we've titled it Bittersweet Sovereignty. You all know what bittersweet is. It's one of those things that either it's you're in the moment and it's hard and you know that it's good and you know that it's worth it, but you, you know how hard it is while you're going through it. And you know that it's the right thing to do. You know that it's sweet and it's in a good place to be, but it is hard. Or it's one of those things that was hard and you didn't see anything good in it at the time. But now having been through it, you look back on it and think about how sweet it was that that's what happened, how good came out of a really hard situation. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Ruth. That's going to be a theme that things are going to be hard, but they're going to be good. And things are going to to work out for the glory of God and even for the good of the characters that we're going to be introduced to this morning. So the book of Ruth takes place during difficult days. Uh, If you're in Ruth, if you found it by now, the opening uh, verse gives us the context of where we're at. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So that's telling you, it's giving you a a chronological cue of where this takes place. Now, if you were reading from left to right, you would have just read the book of Judges. The the period of the Judges is like a 400-year period of time in Israel. We're past that now, and and Ruth is wanting to do like a flashback. It's wanting to look back into this 400-year period. We're not sure where exactly in the book of Judges this story takes place. But the book of Judges is a dark time in the history of the world. In the history of God's people, it is a dark time. There are difficult days to be alive. And after reading the book of Judges, you might get to the end and be like, could anything good come out of something this dark, this hard, this terrible, so many horrible things happening and people doing what they think is good and such bad coming as a result? Can anything good come out of that? And if you, if you actually flip one page back to the left and look at the end of Judges or scroll up, the, the last verse of the book of Judges is a summary statement, and actually it's kind of like the chorus of the book of Judges. It comes up multiple times within the book itself. But the last statement in that book is a basic, a big idea summary of that entire period. It says, in those days, and I have it up on a slide for you, Judges twenty-one twenty-five. in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no authority. It was the Wild West with no sheriffs. It was all black hats. <laughs> Not a white hat or a badge to be found anywhere. It was just a free-for-all. It was like Mardi Gras plus Black Friday plus spring break. <laughs> it was like Hebrews gone wild. <laughs> this is a crazy time to be alive. And you look at that and you're like, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds good, right? People are trying their best. Read the book of Judges. Look what it looks like when people do what they think is best without any reference to God who made them. Look at what it looks like to live in a world where people just give it a go with only their conscience to guide them. Look what it looks like to live in a world where you do you, friend. You do you. That's the book of Judges. If if you've never read it before, go and do yourself a favor. Read that today. That's what it looks like. What is the deal with this bug? (laughs) Is anybody else seeing that? (laughs) Holy cows. (laughs) That's what it looks like to live in a world where people just do what's right in their own eyes. The book of Judges. So drastic times call for drastic measures. That's what the world is like. and 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 part of 
it's not just like there was no king, so people did whatever they wanted. Like, that's true. But it's also, there was, people did whatever they wanted, so they didn't go looking for a king. Like, it works both ways. When people just do whatever they want, they don't naturally seek out people to rule them. They're like, I kind of like this freedom thing. Like, they weren't anxious to do that. So drastic times call for drastic measures. So look at what it says. So in the days of the judge, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, it doesn't say that God sent the famine, but we know that God is in control of the rain, that nothing grows unless God causes it to grow. And so it doesn't say that. And we're going to see that a lot through the book of Ruth. It's not actually going to say God's not going to do a lot in terms of it's not going to say the Lord God did this or the Lord God said that. But you're going to see God moving. It's like the sovereignty of God is like an open tab. And it's the main character in the novel, even though he's never expressly brought forward as the main character. We're going to see him moving. And so we're in a dark time. And so God takes drastic measures. These people are not getting it. They don't look around and see the chaos and yearn for more. They're content to live in a world of chaos and disorder. And so God forces the issue and brings a famine into their world. Why why a famine, though? Aren't things bad enough? Didn't I just tell you things are bad? Things are bad. Why make it worse? Why send a famine and make things worse? Because sometimes when we get used to business as usual, we need something drastic. We need something to shake us out of the regular habits. Like some of you are in relationships like that. Roommates, parents, siblings, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends. Things have kind of been going along business as usual for a while, but they're not good. And you both know it, but neither one of you wants to have the fight. Why have the fight? It's just a Tuesday night. I just want to watch Netflix. Why ruin a perfectly fine Tuesday night? Why? I don't want to ruin a Saturday afternoon. I just want to relax. I want to mow the lawn. I don't want to ruin the day by having the fight that we both know needs to happen. We both know the problem, but we're unwilling to do it. And so that's the world that, that the story of Ruth takes place in, a world where there is something wrong. And so God says, let's have the fight. Let's ruin a Tuesday night. Let's have it out. Let's just talk about the thing that we both know we need to talk about. And some of you in your relationships, that needs to happen. You need to have the fight. You need to care enough about the relationship to have the fight. And God cares too much to let this thing go on forever. He loves these people too much to let them just do whatever they think is right and live in the same house, live around him without actually being in a real relationship with him because there's a problem and they both know it. And so he's the one who steps up and says, can we just talk about the elephant in the room? The fact that you guys all kind of hang out here, but nobody's actually worshiping me. Nobody looks to me for what's right. You just do whatever you think is right. So some of you just need to have the fight. And so God here says, I love you too much to not have the fight. Let's have that fight. Let's have that discussion. Let's ruin a Saturday afternoon. It's worth it. The long-term health of our relationship is worth ruining a Saturday afternoon for. But fighting requires commitment, right? The reason why some people don't fight is because they don't care enough about the relationship. The trick is you have to love the relationship enough to notice that it's not right, but then think that it's worth saving. Like some of you notice stuff and you're like, this thing's broken, and then you move away. You're like, I don't, it's not worth having the fight. I'm done. Maybe you did that with your parents, with a sibling, with a, with a spouse maybe. You're even just like, I'm done. It's not worth it. You're not worth the fight. And so we see that. What happens? God brings a famine. At the end of verse 1 and chapter, in verse 2, we see that Elimelech and his family is like, it's not worth the fight. I'm done. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech's like, this famine stuff, like, I don't, I'm not feeling it. 
I don't want, like, this is, this is you bringing up the fight to your spouse, and I'm saying, I don't want to have this conversation. There's a reason we've been putting it off. There's a reason we don't talk about it. I'm gone. And Elimelech goes to blow off steam. He's like, I don't want to ruin a Saturday afternoon. I had things I wanted to do. I, I was fine with us just sitting there side by side watching our show and not talking about the thing that we know is wrong. I was fine with that. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? So Elimelech bounces. And has anybody in a moment of blowing off steam ever made a wise decision? Like, I'm going to go blow off steam. I'm going to go invest in stocks and bonds. and <laughs> I'm going to, you know, do some sit-ups. <laughs> And like eat healthy, eat a salad. <laughs> like, like people blowing off steam make poor decisions. So Elimelech, you know what he does? He bounces to Moab. So it's, it's, it's one thing altogether to leave the presence of God, but to have all the places to go, to go to a place that God has expressly forbidden his people to go. So, so get the, understand what he's doing here. He's not just taking a walk around the block because he just can't right now. He's going somewhere he knows he shouldn't go. He's retreating to somewhere he shouldn't. And so some of you, when you blow off steam, you immediately run to stuff. And it's not just taking a break from the tension. It's running to stuff that you know you shouldn't be involved in. And that's what Elimelech does. He takes, and he takes his whole family with him down to Moab. And look at this. At the beginning, it says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So what did he want to do? Just take a stroll around the block. He just wanted to wander for a little bit, clear his head. What ends up happening to him? Look at the end of verse 2. They went in the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech wasn't looking to move to Moab. He was looking just to blow off some steam, get some space from God. I just need a break from you. He just needed a holiday from all this righteousness, a holiday from the presence of God. And where does he end up? He ends up living in Moab, not just wandering into sin, not just clicking on the thing he shouldn't, not just saying the thing he knows he shouldn't, not just going to the place he knows he shouldn't. He ends up living there. He didn't... He didn't leave Bethlehem with a change of address form. He didn't register with the post office, hey, forward my mail to Moab. He's like, I'll be back. I still own this place. I'll be back. I'm just going to wander. He ends up moving to Moab. We've said it before, and it bears repeating. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will take you there faster than you want to get there. It will cost you more than you wanted to pay, and it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will every time. And I know we've said that before, and you're like, okay, I've, I've, I've written that one down. We see this routinely come up in Scripture. I think we need to repeat it. Because take warning. Those of you who are tempted to, to leave the presence of God, it's hard right now. It's hard, and you don't like it. And you're tempted to go click on the thing or to go to the relationship you know you shouldn't or to, to visit the thing or go back to the thing that you know you shouldn't. Take this as a warning. You may end up further than you wanted to go. You can't just bank on the fact that I'm just going to take a vacation to immorality. You might end up liking it there a little bit. You might end up liking it a little bit more than you thought. You might not end up just wanting to come back someday. Maybe your heart changes and you don't want to come back anymore. And you end up living somewhere you intended just to blow off some steam and visit. We see Elimelech as a warning of that. And in this chapter, we're introduced to these people. The, the names are important here. The, the author is trying to tell a good story. And so I just want to point this out as like a signpost before we move on. But like Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So what does God do in the house of bread? He brings a famine. It's like going to the house of pancakes and they're out of pancakes. You're like, that's like the one thing you do. You go to the house of blues and there's no 12-bar blues there. There's no guitars, nothing. You're like, that's like the one thing you guys do here. How is there not? The irony of it is that God is drying up the house of bread. 
And Judah is praise. So it's, the, it's Bethlehem, the house of bread and the land of praise. There's a man named Elimelech whose name means my God is king. In a time where there was no king in Israel, his parents said, they named this little boy, my God is king. And he walks away from his, his king, his kingdom. He walks away from his king. The irony of a man whose name is my God is king, walking away from his God and his king to live his life, to do what he thought was right in his own eyes. The, the irony of that. And his wife, Naomi, she is a sweetheart. That's what her name means. Sweetie. Sweetie pie. Sweetheart. Aw. Like her parents, this little baby girl, always wanted a girl, and they named her Naomi. It means sweet. And then they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, straight out of like Babylon 5. <laughs> Their parents were really into the sci-fi channel. Apparently, while, while she was pregnant, they would eat a lot of popcorn watching Andromeda or something. And so Malon and Kilion, their names mean sick and dying. That's like, you imagine like volunteering in Anthem Kids and you meet some new parent and they're like, hi, this is my kid, mad cow disease. And this is his brother, Trenchmouth. <laughs> You're like, what? Like the, the hopelessness of their world is they named their kids sick and dying when they were born and they had the most potential of life available. They said, we know how this story ends. This is the world we live in. There's no hope for us. This is, the, this is what it looks like to live in God's presence, sick and dying, no hope. So that's the importance of the names here. So oh, this is our family. These are our main characters, and they all move from Bethlehem to go live in Moab. It says they remain there. So what happens to this family? Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Why did Elimelech leave Bethlehem? To save his life, to, to not die. What happens to him in Moab? He dies. The very thing he left to avoid. He left God's presence to be like, I'm gonna, I can't take it here. I need to save my life. It's, I need to save my own skin. And what happens to his skin? It dies in Moab, in the place that he sought refuge, the place that he sought to not die. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, said something once, and it left such an impact on every single person who followed him that every gospel writer wrote it down. Matthew wrote it twice. I have it up on a slide for you. Matthew mentions it twice. Mark mentions it. Luke mentions it. John mentions it. Nobody missed this. It left an impact on everybody. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Notice in both scenarios, you lose your life. There is no option where you do not lose your life. You will die. The question is not, will you die someday? The question is, on that day, what will you be living for? On the day that you die, where will you be and who and what will you be living for? That's what Jesus is pressing the issue on. You are going to lose your life. For what will you lose it? Your life is a bank account. You were born with a bank account of currency and every day you're spending it and it's going somewhere and eventually that bank account runs out. Everybody's bank account runs out. What will you have spent your life on? That's the, the point that Jesus is wanting to press. And I think we see that here with Elimelech. He went to save his life. And the very thing he went to save, he died anyways, but now he died away from God's presence. So instead of being with God and dying there where you're in his presence doing what you know you're supposed to do, he leaves God to save his life and dies anyways. The very thing he was seeking to avoid happened to him. So at the end of verse 3, Naomi is now left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there 10 years. 
So Naomi and her two sons are left now. They're in Moab because Elimelech decided to, to hit eject on God. So what impact does that have on his family? Elimelech dies. Do they just go back to Bethlehem? No, they stay there. They stay where he led them. And then not only is it bad enough that they live there, but her sons marry Moabite women. They're not supposed to be there in the first place, let alone dating Moabites, let alone marrying them. So parents and disciple makers know that like, where you are leading people, like you, the compromises you make are affecting the compromises the people who follow you make. And they will probably compromise further than you did. They will see what you thought was worth compromising on, and they will take it even further. Proverbs 22.6 is often used in parenting classes and parenting books. You'll see it all the time. And it's used to encourage Christian parents. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The hope of that verse is train them to love Jesus. Train them. Show them by example that you repent of your sin just like they should and that daddy needs Jesus. That's why we both worship him. That's why we both turn to him. But it works the other way. Train up a child in the way he should go. If you train them up in compromise... And living in Moab, guess what his sons do? They just hang out in Moab, and they actually go further. They don't just hang out in Moab. They marry Moabites. They covenantally bind themselves to a place they shouldn't have been in the first place. They were raised up in the way they should go. And when they grew up, they did not depart from it. They stayed right in line with what their daddy taught them. Moab, what's the big deal? Moab, Bethlehem, what's the big deal? Who does not matter who you marry? Does it really matter all that much? I'm just going to marry these girls. She's cute. And they're there for 10 years. 10 years. He went to just to wander around the block and he ended up living somewhere else for 10 years. 10 years with no church. There's no church in Moab. Nobody worships Yahweh there. No church community. No family. Other than the immediate people who also compromised with you. They have been out of God's fellowship and presence for 10 years. Can you imagine being away from church for 10 years because of a decision you made to wander? And now for 10 years down the road, They've been there. So now they're living there. But why 10 years? Why does it say 10? Why stop there? Well, here's what happens at year 10, verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Elimelech's whole rally cry for his family had been, don't die. Let's save ourselves. I love this thing we got going on too much to stay here where it's hard. Being with God is too hard. Let's go somewhere else. And all of them die, except for Naomi. Everyone dies. Everyone dies because of a decision. Look at Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, verse 25. I have it on a slide for you. These are the times that he lived in. These are the decisions Elimelech made for his family. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. When you live without reference to God, you will do what you think is right. People are not pursuing what they think is wrong. They just take wrong things and then say that it's right. Because everybody wants to be right. Nobody wants to be wrong. Everybody wants to be right. But when you do what you think is right without reference to God, it seems right to you. And everybody dies. Every relationship dies. Everything dies, suffers, when you take your sense of rightness out from under the God who says what is right and what is wrong. When you live that way, you die and you take everyone else with you. Look at the legacy of Elimelech. He died. His sons died. And now Naomi is left in a foreign land without a church community, without a God she's talked to or had interaction with in 10 years. 
And so Naomi finally sees the writing on the wall. Elimelech died, my sons died. I can do the math. If I stay here, I, I have a feeling I know what's about to happen to me. So Naomi wisens up. She's like, let's, let's get out of here. I see, I see what's going to happen here. Moab is not the place for us to be. Verses 6 and 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Listen, here's a major point this morning. In order for something good to begin, something bad has to end. In order for goodness to come, in order for the sweet part of this bitter story to even happen, the bitter part, she has to say no. We have to be done with Moab. As long as she stays there, the story ends exactly the way it did for everybody else. In order for something good to begin, something bad has to end. What is that for you this morning? What is the thing that you need, you need to be done with? It needs to be over. And as long as you hold on to that, there is no blessing there. You cannot look for blessing in Moab. That's not where it is. You can't seek blessing outside of God's presence. It doesn't exist there. It's not in the bottom of a bottle. It's not clicking on more websites. It's not there. You can't find it. What needs to be done with today for good to come into your life? What bad has to be done with so that the good can enter in? Repentance is turning away from the thing and turning towards Jesus. Naomi finally turns her back on Moab and sets her face towards Bethlehem. In order for something good to begin, something bad has to end. What is that thing that has to end today for you? It needs to be done with so that good can stop, good can start. So they're on their way, and of course they stop to chat because the book is named after a woman, and the main characters are women. <laughs> and so over half of the book is dialogue. <laughs> half of the book is people talking because women be talking. <laughs> and I can say that because I'm a guy who talks a lot. I talk, you know, on Sundays a lot. So like, I, I can say that. And, uh, but like, they're going to talk because they're going to talk this thing out. What are we doing here? They don't, it's not enough for them just to walk side by side in silence <laughs> back to Bethlehem. They're like, let's talk about this. <laughs> How are things going? What's going on? So verse 8 through 14, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband of my own. If I should say I even have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown up? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Both of the daughters-in-law initially say, we're with you. Naomi, wherever you're going, we're going. We're with you. And then Naomi lays out the cost of discipleship. Okay, you want to come with me? I got nothing for you. I got no husband. I have no other sons. My God has made my life horrible, but I don't know what else to do then turn to him. I got nothing for you, girls. That's the cost. You want to follow me? Be prepared to have nothing. And so she lays out the cost of discipleship. She says, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. You really want to come back to Bethlehem with me? I got nothing for you, girls. And so in response to that, 
Orpah kisses her and leaves, but Ruth clings to her. Look what Jesus said in Luke 14, 33. He said it the same way. He said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Until you're ready to renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Now, Orpah said she wanted to go until the cost of discipleship were set in front of her. You want to roll with Jesus? You want to go back to Bethlehem? It's going to be hard. You're going to have to have the one thing that most people are unwilling to have. You have to have nothing. The one thing you must have to come to Jesus is nothing, and some of you refuse to have it. You, you hold on to it. You insist on the things that you have. You insist. You run up your resume. You think about all the stuff you have, and you will not have nothing. And it's the thing you must have to follow Jesus. And that's what Naomi tells them. I got nothing, girls, other than God. And even he's kind of questionable at this point, but I'm going to him. <laughs> he's made my life hard, but where am I supposed to go? And so she lays it out in front of him, and Orpah's like, I'm out. Notice she kissed her mother-in-law. She kissed her. Some of you have come in close enough contact to kiss Jesus, and then you walk away. Judas portrayed Jesus with a kiss. You get close enough to have contact with him, but when the costs of discipleship are set in front of you, you're out. But Ruth clung to her. It's the same word from Genesis 2, and it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's covenantal language. It's like, I'm with you no matter what. I'm with you. And Ruth made a covenant before God and people. Said, Naomi, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it costs. I'm willing to have nothing in order to have you and where you're going. It's worth it to me. It's worth it to me to go where you're going. I will have nothing if it means I get to go with you. Look at verses 15 through 18. Look at how Ruth expands on her, her covenant language. So Naomi says to her, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, Naomi is not a great evangelist here. <laughs> she's like begging her not to worship Jesus. <laughs> but she's laying out how hard it is. And I think some of us could do better when we actually share the gospel to like let people know what they're signing on for. Because part of this prosperity gospel baloney that we get ourselves into is we promise them the world. And then when it gets hard... They're like, hey, you said this was going to make my flight nice and easy, and instead it's uncomfortable and there's turbulence. It's like, oh, yeah, I probably should have warned you about that. Jesus said that it's going to be hard, and if you follow him, expect your life to be hard like Jesus's was, but it'll be worth it, and you will save it in the end. You will lose it for my sake, but you will save it. And we, we, we should be more like Naomi in that sense, that we should tell people the real cost of following Jesus and not overpromise and then underdeliver. But Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go... I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Discipleship is till death do us part, and come hell or high water. That is discipleship. When you follow Jesus, you say, till death do us part. I'm with you. Wherever you die, I will die. On the cross, I will carry my cross. Die to yourself, I'll die to myself. When you choose discipleship with Jesus, it is till death do us part, and it is come hell or high water. Wherever you stay, if it's hard, if, the, if, the, if, the, if it's rocks for pillows, then rock for pillows it is because I'm with you. If it's stale bread, it's stale bread. I'm with you. Whatever it costs me, I am with you all the way till death. That will be the only thing that breaks us apart. It's the covenantal language. You've heard this language at weddings. It's the same kind of language we use for like, this is forever until one of us dies or Jesus comes back. This is what we're signing on for because that is 
what discipleship is. Even if it's harder, I choose you. I would rather be with you and have a difficult life and see the sweetness come out of the bitter than to just have the problems I have of not following you and seeking to save my life in Moab and then dying anyways. But repentance is hard, and it will be harder. Going back is going to be costly for Naomi. Not just because she's empty, but going back and eating crow is never fun. To face people that have watched you fail. They've watched you leave town with a strut and come back empty and bitter about your poor decision. It will cost you something to do that. We see that in Naomi in our last verses, 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Her name was given to her as Naomi. And she says, don't call me that. Call me Mara. It means bitter. Don't call me sweetheart. Call me bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me sweet? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and the Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. If you have a pimple, the worst thing you can do is try to cover it up. All you do is highlight to the rest of us that you have a pimple, but you're unwilling to talk about it. <laughs> it makes it more uncomfortable for the rest of us. <laughs> because we can all see that you have a pimple, and we know that you know, because you went to great efforts to cover it up, but we're, we know that we're not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> because you obviously aren't ready to talk about it yet. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? You've done this. I've done this before. You've done this before. If you have a pimple, you're like, oh, or if you have a cold sore, you put on that Carmex thing or whatever, which is just cold sore highlighter. <laughs> like, it's just glosses and glitters and fats. Like, if you want to, like, let people know you for sure have a cold sore, put on Carmex. It's like, da-da. <laughs> like, draw all the arrows right to it. Listen, if you, if you want to diffuse the situation, acknowledge the pimple first thing. Walk into the room and be like, yeah, I'm 40 years old. I got a pimple. Weird life. <laughs> Everybody in the room will be like, oh, thank goodness, because we all saw it. <laughs> Ooh, I'm so glad, because now we can move on. But until you acknowledge it, it's hard for everybody in the room because all I'm knowing is that you don't want to talk about this very obvious thing. And so Naomi actually does a, a, a valiant thing here. She's in a rough spot, but she acknowledges the pimple. She's like, yeah, I'm broke. <laughs> yeah, I, I chose Moab over Jesus and it ruined my life. We all can see that my life is horrible. <laughs> Can we all just agree? Because everybody's like, is that Naomi? She looks pretty janky. <laughs> like, that that's 10 years have not been good, kind to Naomi. And she's like, yeah, I agree. Leaving Jesus has been really hard. I agree with all of you. She just acknowledges. She comes right to the front door and acknowledges what everybody else sees, but everybody else is talking behind her back, being like, oh, my word. Is it okay to mention to her? Because she should know, but oh, I can tell. No, she just comes right to the front door. She's repentant, and she's through the front door, and it's harder to go back. She has these people saying things about her, people questioning the decisions she made, and she's like, you're right. I was wrong. Absolutely. I should not have done that. God had to discipline me because he's a good dad, and I walked away from him. I was running out into the street, so he spanked me. And yeah, I look like I've been spanked, but it's, what, what was God supposed to do? Yeah, take, take advice from me. Don't do what I did, people of Bethlehem. And so maybe some of you are like Naomi this morning. She is in a rough spot. At the end of this chapter, all she sees is the bitter. She's back where she's supposed to be, but she doesn't see the sweetness at all. She knows where she's supposed to be, but she doesn't see how it's going to turn out yet. She doesn't know that chapter 4 is coming. Stick with the story. 
like see how God's sovereignty works even to, to redeem something as tragic as the death of her whole family and her coming back empty and alone and tired and sad. But that's some of you this morning. You're in the middle of something and it's hard. You're like Naomi maybe at the beginning of the story. You're in it and you're tempted to leave. You're like, this is really hard right now and I'm tempted to leave. Bethlehem is where I know I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be with Jesus. I'm supposed to be in church. I'm supposed to be in this connection group, in this marriage. But it's hard and I'm thinking about Moab looks pretty attractive right now. At least it's something different. And some of you are like knowing me at the end of the story. Maybe you're back in church and it's been a while. And you're like, it's been a long time. Maybe not 10 years, but it's been a while. And you know you're back here because this is where you're supposed to be, but it's hard to be back here this morning. Like, I've been away from God for a while. This is hard. It's hard to like be back and be like, hey, guys, and, and endure all the questions like, hey, where have you been? Like, you knew they were coming. You knew all these questions were going to come, and that's why you took so long to come back. You didn't want to deal with all the questions about what you've been up to because it's nothing good. You don't really feel like talking about it. So this morning, the hope for all of us, the hope for Naomi is Bethlehem. Naomi needs to stay there. If it's hard, stay there. It's where you're supposed to be. If you've been away for a long time, if for some reason somebody drug you to church this morning and you don't want to be here, Bethlehem is where you need to be. You need to come back. For some of you, that's what you need to do. You need to come back to Bethlehem. And that's not just true for Naomi. It's true for all of us. Bethlehem is our only hope. And so a thousand years after this story would take place, God would send to Bethlehem the only hope that the world has. In a town of Bethlehem, which is a podunk little town, God sent the Savior of the world to be born in the most podunk part of the most podunk town, in a stable. He doesn't even get a place to stay, and his mom gave birth to him because it was the only way to save people. It was the only way to keep people who are tempted to leave And it was the only way to make a way back for people who've left. So Jesus came into Bethlehem and the hope of the world was born so that he could live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, raised from the grave, triumphant over all of it, and then offer it back to you and saying, there is hope in Bethlehem still for you to return to Bethlehem. And that's what these tables set around the room represent. Jesus gave his body, which is the bread, and it was broken for our sake. He spilled his blood for our sins, and that is what the cup is. And this morning, invite you back to Bethlehem. Or I invite you to stay in Bethlehem. You're struggling. You're tempted to leave. It's hard right now being here. It's hard being in relationship with God. It's hard being in this marriage. It's hard being in this situation, at this job, with this employer. You don't know how hard it is. God knows how hard it is, and he is sovereign. And in him, all difficulties are hard, but they are good. And could anything represent that reality more than the cross? which is the worst day in the history of the world and the best day in the history of the world, all wrapped into one, the day that the Son of God, perfect without spot or blemish, died so that all the sins of the entire world could be put on him so that any of us could have hope by returning to him. Simultaneously hard, but so good. We're going to see that theme all throughout Ruth. So this morning as the band comes up and plays, make your way to the table. If that is your confession, come confessing that I am in Bethlehem, but it's hard, and I want to stay. Jesus, please, by your strength and your life and your example and your constant intercession, because he didn't stay dead. The good news is we're not, we're not memorializing a dead guy. There's no tomb. You can't go visit Jesus' grave. He's not dead. He's alive. He's in heaven. So when you come to him, you come to him. He's alive, and he can intercede on your behalf this morning. He can hold you where you need to be if it's hard. He can keep you there and show you how to stay when every nerve and fiber wants to leave. And he can take you back. He can receive you because of what he did and clean conscience. He can say, welcome 
it is finished. You're welcome. Come to me. So if that is your confession, come to the table. Take off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup. Receive what Jesus has done on your behalf, confessing that Bethlehem is our only hope. It's always only ever been our hope. And this story points us to the hope of a better Bethlehem. And it's in Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Bethlehem. Thank you for the story of Ruth, for Naomi, for the examples that we see of how hard it can be to follow you so that we see that when it's hard for us, we're not alone. People have done this before. We're not the first people to have trial. We're not the first people to get comfortable in our relationship with God, so comfortable that we don't have the fights we're supposed to have. Thank you for sending a famine to their world. Thank you for sending the trials that you send to ours that force the issue. Thank you for loving us so much that you are willing to have the fight. You're willing to ruin a perfectly good Saturday afternoon, a perfectly good Tuesday night, and have the fight because you love us so much. Help us to have the courage to sit it out. Help us to love enough to be disappointed in the way things are going, but love it enough to see that it's worth changing and that you are the one there helping us. Your example in your death on the cross shows that you love us enough to know that this is worth the effort to try and change things. Help us not to be content with the way things are. Help us not to, to be content with being far away or to be too scared to return. If this morning we just need to acknowledge the pimple and say it, just call it what it is and return and confess. We will be welcomed back to a place where there is bread. We'll be welcome back to life that you sent for us. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray and we come confessing him alone as our only hope, a better Bethlehem. Amen.